Good morning, Twin Cities Church. I really am missing seeing all of you on Sunday mornings and at house church meetings. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying in contact with the members of your house church and your house church leaders. If for some reason uh, you run into some trouble, uh, you're, you're feeling kind of low, you can't reach your house church leader, um, please reach out to one of the elders, reach out to Lawrence or Deirdre or myself. Uh, we are here to, to strengthen, to help you, to pray for you, to do what we can to strengthen uh, the entire uh, family of Twin Cities Church at this time. Uh, this morning we're going to be preaching out of Psalm 77. But before I begin, uh, let me pray, and we'll get going. Lord God, you are our only steadfast refuge in times of trouble. You, God, are the, the fortress that protects and defends and delivers us. God, as we are into this uh, time uh, for about a month now, uh, we are increasingly feeling um, the weight and sensing uh, the great need around us in this world uh, for, for peace, for joy, for friendship. God, we um, are in need of leadership. We are in need of safety. But God, you are always there. You have delivered your people throughout all times. You will continue to deliver us. God, as we look at Psalm 77 this morning, and as we see its uh, message of modeling uh, tenacious prayer in the midst of trouble, God, our, our prayer is that you would uh, strengthen us in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, for those of us that are discouraged or faint-hearted, I pray, God, that this... Uh, word would be of encouragement and strength to them. Uh, God, for all of us, may it be a, a persevering, um, a strength to help us persevere uh, throughout this time that we could be uh, devoted to you, uh, devoted to each other, and devoted to those around us who may be in need. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand 
of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great, like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. As I stayed on top of the news this week, as I studied and prayed, as well as talking to some of the house church leaders, it became clear to me that God might be preparing us for a season in which Psalm 77 is going to be quite helpful. At this point, we really don't know how long this current crisis is going to last. How long will our cities continue to experience rising caseloads and deaths? Will there be another surge in cases after the suppression efforts are lifted? How long will be we restricted from our work and going to our job places? How severe will be the economic effects and how long will they be felt? Will we have a sharp increase in economic activity once this is all over in a few months? Or is it going to take a much longer time? Will this ordeal bring about a greater sense of, of unity in our country, or is it going to lead to increasingly more political division? Will we see a growing in the nationalistic and self-protective urges, or we will become, or will we become more helpful and accepting of others? These are all unknown at this point. And how these things will affect us as individuals, as households, and as a church are also unknown. They're saying that this is the most significant global crisis since World War II, and obviously none of us as a church, and very few in the world, were alive back then. We are potentially entering a season of challenges that we have never faced before. And certainly, we are already there. What do we need to prepare for this? I think Psalm 77 gives us some direction in this regard. Psalm 77 takes us through a process that this particular writer, that this particular individual went through when, when he was in a very troubled time. And although it begins with him describing the process that he went through as an individual, it ends with experiences related to the whole nation of Israel, the whole community. So this psalm is a glimpse into an, an individual's process with God, 
while dealing with what is most likely a, a national disaster. We don't know what the trouble is, the psalm never says, but it, it is, it's not insignificant. Um, and in this, this, this significant trouble, the psalmist explains his ordeal. So to begin, he tells us about his prayers to God. He doesn't tell us his prayer, doesn't tell us uh, what he's praying. And it's not a, a prayer directed to God at this point. He's telling the reader about his process that he's going through. He says that he cries aloud to God uh, in this day of trouble, and he longs for God to hear him. At night, he refuses sleep. And he, and, he, and he reaches out for God to help without getting tired. It says that he refuses to be comforted. He refuses to be distracted from his calling out. He is, he is focused on asking God to deliver. And it seems like he's gone on long enough where he actually gets to the point where, where as he thinks about God, he grumbles and complains. And his spirit faints when he thinks about God. It seems like he's been reaching out for so long, and he's heard and experienced nothing from God, that, it, that he's actually come to a point where he seems to be bitter and grumbling towards God. Then the, psalm, the psalmist tells us his speech towards God. He tells God that, <clears throat> excuse me, that God is keeping his eyelids open. Now, some read this as saying that God is, is refusing sleep to this person, but that would con contradict the, the earlier statements. The psalmist is refusing to sleep until God answers his prayers. His eyes are wide open looking for God to do something. And then he says that, that he tells God that he is so upset with the lack of response that he is, he can't even speak. He seems to be reasoning with God and he, and he considers earlier times when he could remember singing at night, giving thanks to God, for God had answered his prayers. God had delivered him. But this is not like this time. He is not singing. And in this reflection, he begins to ask himself some really hard questions. He has six questions. The first one, will the Lord spurn forever? Will the Lord reject him? That's what he's asking. Has the Lord rejected me? Has he rejected me forever? Then he asks, will the Lord never again be favorable? Is God never again going to be pleased with him? Is God never again going to delight in him? Is God ever going to accept him again? Then he asks, has his steadfast love forever ceased? God's love is a characteristic that throughout the entire scripture is one of his strongest and most described attributes. But the psalmist even wonders if God loves him anymore. Then he asks, are his promises at an end for all time? 
The entire scripture is based around God's promises to his people. To man and woman in the garden about the promised child who deliver the world from evil. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would have a, a, a nation that is beyond number in their own land and that they would be flowing with milk and honey. Prosperity and happiness for all. He's come to a point where he's wondering if God is even going to fulfill the promises that he has made and that the scriptures have been recording for centuries and centuries. Then he asks, has God forgotten to be gracious? Again, we see one of the attributes being questioned, one of the attributes that is that is one of the most consistent and explained attributes of God throughout all of scripture. And the psalmist has said, has God lost it? Has he lost his graciousness? Has he forgot what it means to show mercy? He's so troubled by his experience, and it's been so long since God has answered his prayers that he wonders if God has forgotten how to. The final question, has God shut up his compassion and anger? Has God become so angry with me? Has God become so angry with his people that he no longer desires at all to show them any sort of grace or compassion? Has God's judgment now triumphed over his mercy? The psalmist doesn't confess any, any particular sin of his or of the nations, but he wonders, is God that angry with us? And then he moves on to say that what, is, that what has hurt him or grieved him so much is that how God is currently acting, which is unresponsive and seemingly indifferent, is so different from the way that God used to act, that God used to treat him and, that, and how God used to treat his people. And this is hurting. It hurts him to think about God changing. He has remembered the days of old where he used to experience the love and mercy of God, where he used to sing of God's greatness. But in the midst of this pain and in the midst of these recollections and in the midst of him thinking that maybe God has completely changed, instead of, instead of just getting buried in despair and depression and anger, with determination and grit, the psalmist resolves to call to his mind and meditate on God's wonders and his deeds and his works of old. He knows that in the past God was merciful, compassionate, loving, and he answered prayers. And he's going to meditate on those truths, on those wonders, on those deeds, so that it strengthens him to persevere. Even though that it seems that those that those actions, those deeds, those wonders, those stories do not reflect the God that he now knows. So the rest of the psalm then, verses 13 through 20, is an intentionally, as I, I call it a dialed up description about God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And there are two things to point out in this section. First of all, the event itself. God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt is the is the nation forming foundational event for the nation of Israel. Israel went into Egypt 
at the size of about 75 people. It was just a, a really large family. And after 400 years, they came out of Egypt, numbering into the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Through the plagues, God redeemed Israel from captivity, and then they went into the desert to be their own people, and they would have their own land, they would be their own nation, no longer enslaved to Egypt any longer. So this is the story that the psalmist chooses to reflect on. It, it brings him back and brings the reader back to Israel's defining moment in history. It is through this act that God demonstrates in his most powerful way, in crushing Egypt's armies, in destroying their arrogance, it is God's most strong expression of his love and of his mercy and of his compassion, of his care for the nation of Israel. All the things that the psalmist was doubting, this story brings to mind God's greatest expression of those things. And while his doubting questions were real, he knows that God in the past has demonstrated care and compassion and love for Israel. And so the second thing to point out in the recalling of this story of, of Israel's freedom from Egypt is the imagery behind the recollection. So, if you recall the stories, being a witness to the plagues, being a witness to God destroying the armies of Egypt, being a witness to God parting the Red Sea and then the nation of Israel walking through that, being a witness of that event alone, just what was there, uh, would have been mind-blowing. Nothing had ever been seen or has ever been seen since. However, the, the psalmist is not content with just drawing to mind the imagery present from that event. The psalmist is also bringing images from Genesis chapter 1, when God hovered over the waters and from the waters brought up the land and created all things. He's bringing in images from Mount Sinai where God visited the mountain where Israel was at and where Moses was at and God spoke face to face with Moses and there was thunder and lightning and storms. It was a terrifying event. There was, the earth was shattering. The psalmist is bringing in all of these other images so that the, the full understanding of, of God in, in, in all of his majesty and power and terror, really, uh, is coming to mind in the reader. This is the God who created all things in heaven and on earth. This is the God that delivered Israel from the most powerful nation of the world. This is the God that spoke to Moses face to face and that made a covenant with Israel through the law. And he did all of these things with the earth shaking and lightning flashing and mind blowing and, and eardrum blowing sights and sounds that would literally cause the, the earth to tremble and to shake. And then the psalm ends. There's no resolution to the prayer. There is no praise for God's deliverance. And there really isn't even a prayer. The psalm just reflects on uh, his own calling out to God. You know that he's calling out for God to do something, but we don't know what. He acknowledges that God is holy and mighty and without rival, but he doesn't follow that up. And so as you're reading through this, you kind of, you kind of stop reading the psalm 
and are left with this, this idea that, you know, nothing has really changed. The psalmist is still probably awake at night, restless, keeping himself awake, looking for God to answer his prayers. He's probably still grumbling. He's probably still moaning. We're just left with that. But, but we're left with the, the reader knowing that this psalmist is striving to stay at it, to persevere, to tenaciously engage God in prayer. So what are we to do with this psalm? Well, it seems to me that we should take it as a model for when we as individuals and as a community are experiencing substantial trouble. So what do I mean by substantial trouble? Well, it seems like if we were to just take this psalm, it seems like substantial trouble would be to experience conditions that are so painful and that have gone on for so long that when we think about God, we actually may get a little bitter or even angry. We, we find ourselves complaining to him most of the time. It seems like there, there are troubles that aren't, aren't troubles that quickly go away. They are enduring, they are always there, and they are significant. So in this psalm, as we think about it being a model, we see that in the psalm he considers former days, when he felt the presence of God, when he experienced God answering prayer. And these, these former days, these past experiences, provided the psalmist with a type of, of baseline. It provided him a place where he could go back to and say, you know what, I know that God has been this way in the past. I know that he has answered my prayers. He's delivered us in the past. And that helps him stay grounded at this point of substantial trouble. And so there's a big gap between his memory of that baseline experience, be, between what he remembers about God doing in his past life and what God is doing now. There's a big gap. But even though there's this big gap, because of those prior experiences, he stays in the fight. He keeps working the stories of God into his mind. He wants God to answer his prayer, and he's not giving up on those requests. Now, we may have some very troubled times ahead of us as individuals, as households, as a church, as a city, as nation, as nations, as the world. We may face sickness. Many people are. We may face death. Many people are. We may face financial ruin. We may face more isolation and loneliness. We may face greater conflict with those that we are uh, in isolation with. We may face panic and violence in the streets. We may face all of these and maybe worse. I hope not. I was encouraged by the news this, this morning, at least about Minnesota, uh, the projections about where we're at and where we're headed. 
um, are not as bad as they were a couple of weeks ago. Looks like some of our suppression efforts are working, at least here in Minnesota. But there are places where they are very troubled and where they are experiencing significant hardship. But are we prepared for things to get worse? Are we prepared to, 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 to engage the great troubles of our lives? And it's not like we've never experienced great troubles as individuals or as households. Are we ready to pray like the psalmist uh, here shows us how to pray? Are we ready to pray for the troubles yet to come? I think we need to ask ourselves, what prevents us from praying like this? From this kind of tenacious prayer? This prayer with grit and perseverance and stick Well, the text seems to indicate a few things that would prevent us. First, you know, the, the psalmist said that he has refused to let his soul be comforted. Well, I think one of the things that holds us back is that we let our souls be comforted by lesser things than God answering our prayers. What kind of things do we seek comfort from? Well, the usual suspects, excuse me, what kind of things do we seek comfort in and through? The usual suspects, to be sure. Pleasure and entertainment are great sources of comfort, and they provide some escape. Even now, people are telling us to just sit home and watch television and movies all day, and in doing that, we're saving lives. Is that the solution? Is that what this psalmist is doing? The comforts, the classic comforts throughout all time that that relieve us of some pain and trouble are, are sex and food and substance abuse, money. And, and even though these things don't provide lasting satisfaction, and we know that because we got to keep going back for more, and they certainly don't solve the problems that we're trying to escape from. Nevertheless, our, our, our bodies long for them, and we keep feeding ourselves these things. And it doesn't have to be extreme examples. It doesn't have to be transgressive things. They don't have to be sinful in and of themselves. We can use any of the good things that God has given to us for our pleasure uh, to provide us just enough stimulus to keep our minds and our souls off of what troubles us. It's not wrong to watch TV, to have sex with our spouses, to eat good food, to drink great drink, to go jogging, to go biking, to go golfing, or many of the other pleasurable things that we engage in. Even small amounts of these things can take the edge off of our troubles. Enough to be able to reduce the bitterness and the resentment and the pain at least for a short time. Just enough to get us to the next fix or just the next day. Now, obviously, or I hope that it's obvious, I'm not advocating that we stop engaging in all of the good things that God has given us, that he has created, that bring happiness and relief from trouble. The scriptures say that God is giving 
given much of these things to us for the exact purpose of relieving us from trouble. If we were to reject them wholesale, it would be in essence a way of rejecting God and his gifts to us. And we can't do that. However, we need to seriously consider to what degree we are enjoying these things as gifts in a spirit of worship versus to what degree are we enjoying these things to escape the pain that we should be turning to God for. So that's one obstacle to this type of prayer. The second thing that I think that hinders us from praying this way is that we stunt our emotions when things get really painful. And we're hesitant to express in words to ourselves and to God doubts about God's character, troubles that we're experiencing. And we begin to, and, and, we're, and we're hesitant to even question God's promises. It's almost like we think that God doesn't know our thoughts and our feelings or that he's not big enough to understand the depths of our pain, or that he's big enough for us to articulate what we're already feeling. Do we think that God is going to punish us for communicating these things? Do we think that he's going to condemn us? Or do we think, and I think this is probably the case, do we think that by articulating and expressing these thoughts and feelings will confirm what we fear is true, that we are not righteous, that God doesn't accept us, that he is indeed angry with us, that there's nothing that can be done. We think a good Christian wouldn't have these thoughts or feelings. A good Christian wouldn't be bitter and groan at what seems to be God leaving us and rejecting us. To resist an honest experience of God by holding back on thoughts and speech that reflect our pain, I think is to settle into a type of, of works-based righteousness, where our sense of good about ourselves is based upon the types of thoughts and feelings that we have and the speech that gives them expression. Now, it's good to resist thinking and speaking in ways that produce harm and self to others, absolutely. But there is no harm to God to speak to him and tell him what you're feeling. It doesn't hurt anybody else to do that. It creates an honesty with God a real relationship with God that recognizes that God and the deliverance that he provides is big enough and powerful enough to handle the, the, the dark experiences and the dark thoughts that come to our minds and that are present in our lives. A third thing that hinders us is that we cannot readily call to mind God's amazing acts of power and deliverance and love that are narrated in the Bible towards God's people. These are historical events that God has worked in to show his character and to fulfill his promises. They're not myths. 
the more that we see these events and how they're interconnected from the beginning with God creating man and woman and all things in heaven and on earth to, to the end where Jesus is going to return and rule forever, the more we will see the, the beauty and the power and the reality of God's work in this world. We need to have working knowledge of these things. And working knowledge is more than just knowing them like you would know answers on a test. Having working knowledge of these things is to, is to have a mind that is familiar with the characters, that is familiar with the movement of plot, that is familiar with the artistic depth, that is familiar with the, the, the victories and the failures of, of God's people throughout the ages. And how all of these things are connected to the entire unfolding story of God's work to redeem humanity from being enslaved to the devil, from being enslaved to the temptations of the world, and being enslaved to our own propensity towards evil. Without the, the reality of God's redeeming works in our mind, without these stories of actual things that God has done, we won't be able to draw on them for the strength that we're going to need to stay in the fight, to believe um, that God is good, that God is for us, that God is listening to us, that God will deliver us. If we don't have these stories, we can't draw upon them for strength, and we will just remain in a place of despair and discouragement and anger. We could ask, what is the point of looking back to stories that took place 3,000 years ago? So what if God saved Israel from Egypt? What does that have to do with us now? Or does it? Well, it absolutely does. The psalmist was bringing this to mind. It was something that had, been, that had happened centuries and centuries earlier. But God did not create humanity. God did not save Israel from Egypt. God did not give Moses and, and Israel the law. God did not do all of these things just as, as ad hoc, isolated efforts to show that he was God in the midst of a, a feeble humanity. All of these events, all of these characters, all these stories are connected to the biggest promise that God ever made, to bring life to this earth by destroying evil and its source and providing a way for humanity to experience that same victory over evil and to live a life of prosperity and happiness. As we have seen, the, psalm, the Psalms are written to bring prosperity and happiness to the people that study and read and meditate on them. And God's plan was to do this through a family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that became the nation of Israel. And the historical events, all of these things, of the nation of Israel and then of, of Christ and then of the church, are demonstrations of God's power to bring about what he said he would. They are testimonies of God being faithful to his promises. So for us, we can look back over the course of thousands of years of history and see the promises of God unfold to the point to where the scriptures say the prophets all longed to know. The fulfillment of God's greatest act of power, of love, of mercy, and of faithfulness. The incarnation of God into the person of Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his death, 
and resurrection, the promised descendant of Abraham. Where is the deliverance there? How is this a testimony of God's faithfulness and love? Well, the deliverance was in Jesus Christ himself overcoming death. Death is the ultimate end result of all of our sin, of all of the sin and evil and bad things on the earth, of all the, the trouble and illness and pain and suffering that we go through, go through. Death is the end. That is what we have to look forward to, unless we know Jesus Christ. And Jesus was delivered from death as a human being. Our hope at the end of the day, our day of trouble, whatever it might be, is the hope that is found in the resurrected Messiah. Jesus tells us that our faith in him, in his death for our sins, and in his resurrection from the dead, unifies us with his death and unifies us with his life. We suffered in his suffering. We became alive in his resurrection. That, it, that, that this has been completed in Christ, that, that we no longer have to look at death as the final thing, that there will be deliverance, that Christ has overcome, that this has been completed in Christ and promised to us should move us to pray with, the, with tenacity and grit, the same way that this psalmist was approaching his prayers, because we know that deliverance is certain. We have a certain hope. We do not have to give up in anger and despair. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, and Jesus is bringing it. And this kind of brings up another obstacle in addition to the ones before. I think that one of the biggest challenges that we face is that we become personally comfortable. We let our souls be comforted. And this causes us to remain somewhat unaware unaware of and, and desensitized to the non-existence of the kingdom of God around us. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. The darkness is passing away. The light is shining. And we need to be asking ourselves, is the light increasingly shining in me, in my family, in our church, in our spheres? See, we become unaware of or desensitized to the fact that to, to, to the trouble that's around us. Our own sins against others don't trouble us enough. It doesn't trouble us enough that our families, our, our friends, and our neighbors aren't walking in Christ. It doesn't trouble us enough that our, that our cities, our states, our nations are enslaved to, to functional idols and false gods. It doesn't trouble us enough that, that brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are oppressed and persecuted by their governments. These things are troubling, not to mention the current distress that we are in. But these things don't trouble us enough to pray with the tenacity and grit that this psalmist demonstrates. So what would it look like to pray with this type of, of tenacity and grit in a day of trouble? Well, 
We obviously can't make it a regular habit to go without sleep. And it doesn't say that this psalmist is going days and days and months and months like this. It could have easily been two or three days to have the experience described there. And it doesn't say it's two or three days every week. Who knows how frequent it could have been. But perhaps, perhaps that we could take a day now and then. Perhaps we could make an effort to, to fast. Perhaps we could make an effort to once in a while put off some of the comforts that we regularly use to, to bring comfort to our souls and, and instead engage in a few hours or maybe even a whole day in a type of tenacious prayer. There are a number of ways that it could look for us. Maybe it's just using some small modifications to our schedule to engage God in a type of, of tenacious prayer that really demonstrates to him that we're waiting. We're waiting, God, for you to hear our cries. We're waiting, God, for you to deliver us from trouble. We're waiting, God, for you to show the kind of deliverance that you showed in your Son, Jesus Christ. We are waiting, God. We believe in your promises. We are calling them to mind. And we want to see the kingdom of God unfold in our midst. We don't know. We may be closer to the kinds of troubles that would force us into this kind of prayer. But I think that this type of prayer should be, at least to some level, an aspect of how we pray, because there is trouble all around us, and we need to prepare for what may come. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the, the example of prayer in this psalm. Thank you, God, that we see a person who was so troubled uh, by whatever it was that was going on that they sought you earnestly, tenaciously for help. God, I pray that you would strengthen us against becoming so comfortable with where we're at, that you'd strengthen us against being desensitized to the troubles around us, and that we would long for the kingdom of God and for your presence to be made known here. Let us pray for these things. God, prepare us for the time to come. In your son's name we pray. Amen.